This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a very special guest for you on the podcast. His name is Jack Carr. And for a lot of you guys, there's no other introduction that needs to be made. But for those of you who aren't familiar with Jack Carr, he is a professional writer, but also a retired Navy SEAL sniper. He retired as an officer from the Navy SEALs. But his books have gone all over the place and they've shot to the top of the bestseller list because this year he appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience, basically got a ringing endorsement for his third novel. And then people just started buying up his books left and right. I remember hearing stories about the fact that at one point you could not find a hardback version of its first three books, which are The Terminal List, True Believer, and then Savage Son. So on this podcast today, we certainly talk about his books. We talk about his book that he has coming out next April called The Devil's Hand. It's pre-order right now. It's April the 13th. I'll have all that information for you in the show notes. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the fact that he's a Navy SEAL and how all that's interesting. But with this podcast episode in particular, I didn't want to do the normal Jack Carr interview. Because the normal Jack Carr interview is, you know, hey, let's talk about the books and how do you get your ideas for books and oh, wasn't that cool that you made it through buds and, uh, you know, isn't it cool that you're a sniper and oh man, what about this? Uh, Do you like this gun or do you like this knife? All that's cool. And we get into some of that, right? Because I'm frankly interested in that stuff as well. But I wanted to give Jack some latitude to talk about some larger topics. I mean, we all love the EDC stuff. We all love the Navy SEAL stuff in the books. But I wanted to give him a chance to talk about some stuff that he maybe doesn't get to talk about. I've seen a lot of his interviews. I've read a lot of the stuff that's been written about him. And I gave him that latitude today. Asked him some questions about some big topics, about things going on right now in America, things going on societally, culturally, also just the state of manhood overall, his own personal spirituality. And guys, I couldn't have been more excited with how this ended up. He was so gracious, so nice on air and off air. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Jack Carr, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. I got to tell you, the moment I even hinted at some of uh, the interviews I was going to be doing, some guys were like, dude, have you talked to Jack Carr? Are you going to get Jack Carr? We got to get Jack Carr on here. His books are so awesome. And, and guys, we're going to get into the books. We're going to get into uh, a lot of his history. But the thing I got to start out with, this is a selfish question just for me. I followed you on Instagram for a long time and you always post these amazing pictures from what looks to be the coolest living room in the history of anything ever. Is that your actual living room? Is that really what you look at every single day when you're working from home? That is, but, uh, but we just moved this week. No! So I'm, actually, I'm in the process of, uh, of a move. So there's boxes everywhere. It's total chaos. I'm in this little closet right now trying to figure out the internet connection. Um, but yeah, that was the, was the house. We were there for three years. Uh, beautiful spot, beautiful view right there nestled into the mountains with moose coming by and mule deer coming by. And it was a, a great spot with an amazing office. Um, but the office did look great. 
But just on the other side of those doors was complete chaos with uh, family, three kids, dog, <laughs> wife, the, the rest of it. So uh, although Instagram made it look nice and peaceful, in reality, uh, if, if I was to pan, turn it into a video and pan to, uh, outside those doors, total chaos. So, uh, so yeah, we moved to a place that was a little uh, better set up for the family. And uh, we'll be here for about a year, year and a half or so while we build one that's uh, uh, even more uh well suited for our family situation so well, very good not a bad spot though not a bad spot and as long as the views from the next spot are good you know maybe we can just take some posterity photos uh from the place you're at now and we can post them <laughs> later but uh you know there's a lot to talk about uh today and we're going to go a little bit different than some of the interviews that you've done before but I, I think the most appropriate place to start would just be kind of the day that your entire life got flipped upside down. And that's whenever you appear on the Joe Rogan experience in April of this year, um, your life and, and really your career as an author exploded after that. Um, you were having success. You, you definitely were having quite a bit of success, but then it just went to another level. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of latitude to, you know, tell our viewers what it was like, you know, when you were contacted by Joe or the, the show and kind of what the process was like doing the show. And then obviously what life has looked like thereafter. Yeah. So it's interesting in that I was really hoping that before the third book came out, actually, I was hoping before the first book came out, before the second book came out, right. before the third book came out, that uh, that Joe would have me on, uh, that I'd go on something like a, a Fox and Friends type show, uh, that Chris Pratt would say something because he optioned the rights to the for the movie before or series before uh, the book first book even hit the shelves. Um, I was hoping like all those things would happen. And none of them happened uh, before that third book came out. And now I am so happy that they didn't because the third book made the New York Times list, which is a, a, you know, a benchmark for authors. That's pretty important. And, uh, and so it made that because of grassroots word of mouth, because of podcasts like this, because of readers, because of hunters, because of tactical shooters, because of veterans uh, who told a friend and then maybe posted something to their five followers or 10 followers or 20,000 followers or a million followers, whatever it was. But it was all grassroots word of mouth and modern word of mouth through connecting with people that most of people that I had relationships with before I had an Instagram account or before I was an author, um, just be by being around the tactical industry, by wanting my guys to have the best gear possible before we went down range in the SEAL teams um, and that sort of thing. So I had these relationships with that were personal to, to different companies. And as they saw me transition, uh, a lot of them wanted to help. And uh, it was just very cool to see that and uh, to have the book make the New York Times list because of that grassroots effort. So Joe Rogan happened a few weeks after the New York Times list. Uh, Chris Pratt posted something a couple of weeks after the New York Times list. Uh, I went on Tucker Carlson a couple of months <laughs> after. So it, all that stuff happened after. And now I am so thankful that they didn't do anything beforehand. And I knew Chris beforehand. I knew Joe beforehand. Um, I, I, I'm one of my dear friends, is, dear friends with Tucker. But I'm so glad none of those guys had me on or said anything before the book made it on its own because now you know no one can say oh you only because you went on rogan right thing, make right Times well no it happened afterwards so so i'm very thankful now that none of that stuff happened beforehand but it was interesting with with joe um his podcast was very different than a lot of the other ones i've done i've known him for a few years now um through the uh, the connection to hunting and all that sort of thing so we've we've been out together we've hunted together fantastic guy and podcast listeners, and I, I knew this ahead of time, uh, seem to be more uh, audiobook type listeners. And so as soon as I went on Rogan, yeah, audiobook, boom, that hit the New York Times list. The first book, boom, that hit the New York Times list. So, uh, but, so the audiobook connection to podcast listeners is, uh, is strong. 
is a strong one. So that was, uh, that was, that was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a great few years and, uh, and yeah, it, right now I finished the fourth novel and I'm working on the scripts for the Amazon series. So it's, uh, it just doesn't stop. So you're not busy at all, which is great. So you got all the time in the world with the guys, this is going to be a four or five hour conversation. So buckle in. Uh, no, so that's just awesome because that's where a lot of guys did see you for the first time. Cause I gotta be honest. I remember seeing copies of, you know, the terminal list and, and true believer just on people's shelves for people that I follow on Instagram. So it really, the grassroots organic movement hit me as well. Um, and guys, I know we would be remiss if we didn't at least talk about, uh, your history in the Navy SEALs. Um, you know, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on that because you've talked about that really in a lot of other interviews. But the the biggest thing that I did want to get your opinion on and for you to kind of give our listeners is you're a sniper. You were a sniper. You, you spent a lot of time behind the glass, but there are a lot of misconceptions about what a sniper is in general, but even specifically what a Navy, Navy SEAL sniper does. And it's not always, you know, uh, the, the big Hollywood moments that people might be thinking of. So from your perspective, with, with all your history, with that particular job, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about what a sniper is in general, but even just a more specifically a Navy SEAL sniper? I guess maybe the biggest misconception is that, uh, you never miss. <laughs> and I don't right. know. If I, I don't know if I want to talk about missing right now. It's not the, but uh, yeah, everybody, you know, everybody misses um, in in training and in in real life, and that's just how it. That's just how it goes. So probably the biggest misconception is uh, is you know that it is it is a very uh, strong capability, and we are very good at it. Um, all military snipers are very good at it. And they've only gotten a lot better since September 11th, because in the run up to September 11th, really we were using technology and tactics that were developed uh, in the Vietnam War, because that is the last time we were in sustained combat operations. And since that time, there have been flashpoints here and there, like at uh, Desert One, at uh, Grenada, at Panama, at Mogadishu. But those were just, uh, you know, those were the kind of like the one-offs. And we weren't in sustained combat until just after September 11th, 2001. So um, the the technology that's been developed since then, the tactics that have evolved since then. I mean, I can only, I've been out for a few years now and I can only imagine how much better the snipers are now, uh, just what's been developed and those tactics and all of that being incorporated into the training. So those guys are probably pretty good now. My sniper school was in 2000, uh, right after my first platoon. And, uh, it was a lot more of the art than the science back then. And uh, today I'm sure it's a mixture of art and science, but the science piece of it has come really come to the forefront. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's an incredible capability, but uh, that's something I explore in my novels as well. And what I'll explore in the future is kind of that art versus science piece of sniping. So yeah, biggest misconception is that, uh, you know, you never miss. Um, and uh but yeah, but I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to dispel that right now. <laughs> we don't <laughs> or, miss much. How about that? Yeah, we'll go with don't miss much. But that is one of the misconceptions because whenever you read any novels that talk about snipers, or anytime you see one on television, like oh, the FBI snipers coming in for the hostage situation, or you know, there's they're someone's trying to be Hathcock from Vietnam and they're they're trying to do their different things. It does seem like you guys just don't miss and that you don't make mistakes, which you clearly do. But it, it is the the makes that that do make the news and make the headlines as well. Um, the other thing I did want to talk about with uh, your Navy SEAL history, because you've, you've talked about this before. You actually said on Instagram that you've always loathed the SEAL ethos, um, but you didn't really elaborate or uh, not really anywhere where, where I saw. So I do want to give you some latitude to elaborate, if you will, on why you're not a huge fan of the SEAL ethos, but even as it pertains to just what 
what came out a few months ago, which is that the Navy SEALs said that they were going to remove gendered language from the ethos. Uh, and then also you subsequently saw uh, President Trump saying that he would oppose those changes. So so kind of, you know, tease that out for us a little bit about, you know, some of your issues with the SEAL ethos and where you maybe see it going. Yeah. So I was going to write a, a blog post at some point where I could sit down and really put some more thought into it. Um, but the first time I saw that ethos, and I'm, I get the exact date wrong, but let's just say it's 2005-ish, somewhere around that time frame when they came out with that thing. And they put a bunch of people on an island out at San Clemente Island off the coast of California, and they come up, came up with these uh, this ethos, and then they distributed it to the SEAL teams. In the meantime, I mean, while we were in the midst of the war, um, there was a SEAL ethos that was unofficial before then that I have, and I'm pretty sure it was developed in Vietnam, and it's uh, it's legit. And I'm not going to post it because it's not out there; you can't find it anywhere. So I'm never going to post it. Um, but uh, but it's it's hardcore. And when I read this ethos first, I was like, okay, we're trying to be like the Rangers, although theirs theirs, theirs has history to it. They just didn't all of a sudden put a bunch of people in a room and right. try to come up with a good idea and, and put it out there. Uh, to keep guys from getting in trouble, which what it seemed like this was about. But to me, it read like the Dunder Mifflin mission statement. Um, <laughs> and for, the, for those that uh, follow the office, you can get online there. You know, it, I think it's in the in the beginning, and I'm going to get the book wrong, but it might be in one of uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books, or maybe it's in uh, Drive or um, uh, the Why. Anyway, it's one of those one of those types of books where it puts that out there, and you read it, and you're like, oh, that's that's interesting. Hmm. Huh, I wonder what company is that from? And then at the end, when you get to the end, after the author talks about it, it's like, this is from Dunder Mifflin from The Office, right. you know? <laughs> and it just read like that to me. And so it, I was kind of like, uh, it just never sat well. It seemed like it was a bunch of senior level people that got together and came up with some good ideas. And in the military, we call it the good idea fairy uh, that really floats down, usually from on high, not always, but a lot of the time. And, uh, and they put out this, you know, fairly you know, kind of innocuous, I don't know, it was just... It's kind of like the, I equate it to, for those that know, and I might get the, the HK23, um, which was, and I might, I don't want to mess up my nomenclature because um, people do check you these days, but right. it was the uh, the huge HK45 pistol that uh, came out probably a few years before I came in, in the military. But by the time I got to my first SEAL team in 97, we had these things and they were enormous. It was like the Princess Leia blaster from Star Wars, right. for those that remember that movie. And and it no one used it after September 11th. As soon as September 11th hit, those things went kind of in the dumpster, I guess, or you know whatever, they got sent back to HK or sent back to Crane, Indiana, wherever they, they go, but I never saw one downrange. Uh, it was a gigantic pistol and it was all the good ideas that people had. Hey, we went this, we went this, we went this, we went this. And so HK built it with all those great ideas. And uh, guess what? No one ever used it, to my knowledge anyway, in combat um, because it had all those great ideas and they just shoved them all in there. So that's kind of what that ethos looked like to me. It was a bunch of people getting together, putting some good ideas together and making that HK-23 pistol that no one used in real life. And my thought was kind of like, hey, if you need at this point someone to tell you to write this out for you, um, you're probably in the wrong line of work here. Um, so that was just, those were my thoughts for the first time I saw it. And so it never sat well with me. Um, and then senior level leaders could always point to that thing. Anytime anybody got in trouble, Hey, look at the ethos that we just made up five <laughs> right. minutes ago. Right. So <laughs> it was always seemed like one of those senior level officer and then senior level, 
you know, super senior level enlisted, um, you know, not the tactical level uh, guys that are doing the work, but the guys that are sitting in the rooms at the meetings, coming up with those good ideas and then pushing them down to the, the front lines, not having to live with the consequences of those decisions. So it just never sat well with me for, for those reasons. Well, and with that, you see this kind of management by committee, you know, one of those great ideas that come down on high. And then obviously someone had the great idea that we were going to remove the, the gendered language from the ethos. So since you're not really a big fan of the ethos anyway, would it be fair to say that maybe you don't really care if the, the gendered language is removed or do you feel like that's maybe endemic of something bigger? You know, I'm kind of numb to all of this at this point, especially since this last election and the, the events of the summer, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. But it's kind of like, yeah, of course they're going to do that. <laughs> of course they're going to take this Dunder Mifflin thing and make it even worse. Because uh, so, that's what they what they do. Um, so I don't know. It's just kind of one of those things like wonderful. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're on that trajectory. I don't see any it, I don't see things turning around anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, does it make us a stronger force, any of that? No, I don't think so. Um, and neither did the most of the people to my right and left, at least the ones that I talked to about it back in the day. So uh, to me, it always comes back to, what, is this going to make us a stronger fighting force? And if that answer is yes, oh, wonderful. And if not, then why are we doing it? Hey, fair enough. And guys, uh, don't worry. We're going to get way deeper into some of those cultural issues later on in this podcast, but I would be remiss if we had a Jack Carr podcast and didn't talk about the novels. So as most of you guys know at this point, there are the three novels you've released so far, The Terminalist, True Believer, and Savage Son, and they are absolutely fantastic. They, they really are. And this is coming from a guy that I talk about a lot on this podcast. I don't read fiction. I don't do it. It's like my brain doesn't really connect. It's hard for me to keep people straight. You know, it's like I have PTSD from all the Stephen King novels I tried to read back in the day because there's 74 main characters and they live in 17 different planets. And so it's just like, I can't, I can't really get it. And then you get to the end of the novel and everything just explodes anyway. But then you've got the fourth novel coming out April 13th of 2021, guys. It is available for pre-order. It's called The Devil's Hand. So just in general, without spoiling everything, don't worry, we'll spoil everything after I stop recording. You can just tell me what happens. But what can readers expect from the fourth novel? Yeah, so I always wanted to explore because I was, I was I was thinking about it while I was in. Um, so it's one of these questions I wanted to explore uh, for years and that I've been thinking of uh, professionally and personally for years. And that is, what has the enemy been learning from us over what is now almost 20 years at war? So essentially, you know, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and we've been in a few other places around the world and our enemy has been able, well, the ones that we've been fighting have been able to adapt and they've adapted, we've adapted, that's part of warfare. But we've had other people watching. We've had China watching, we've had Russia watching, we've had North Korea watching, we've had Iran watching and participating through proxies. Um, and they've been learning. And my thought was, hey, if I was the enemy watching us on the battlefield for these last 20 years, what would I have learned? What would I have incorporated into my battle plan? And so that's the really the theme of this next novel here. And I explore that through a, uh, a bioweapon that, uh, and it's interesting, I was studying bioweapons well before COVID hit. So I started studying these in the fall of last year, this time last year, and started to, to research, started to talk to people in, involved in uh, bioweapons research and uh, uh, bioweapon vaccines and that sort of thing, and formulating how I was going to approach this from the enemy's point of view. And uh, then COVID hit, so I was hypersensitive to all of this when COVID hit. Um, and then I thought, then you come up with, well, now do I need to incorporate COVID into the novel? And uh, different authors are doing different things. And for me, COVID, uh, the civil unrest of the summer, uh, all these things that they've then 
so front and center in my mind and in many other citizens' minds that I figured I, well, I thought I can't not include this. I can't not incorporate these things into this fourth novel. Um, well, for a variety of reasons, but uh, so those are that's why I incorporated that as well, and it worked right into the storyline. So it's uh, so main point is that I got to look at what we've been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan for these last twenty years through the enemy's eyes, and then figure out, hey, what would I do if I wanted to hit us? while we were down uh, and with COVID and with the, uh, the riots of this past summer, would that accelerate my planning uh, with that? Would I factor that in as well? And so that's the, that's the devil's hand coming in April. Well, Hey guys, if that doesn't get you excited to pick that book up, I don't know what will, but, but again, I think the, the, the fact that the first three books are so accessible, and I don't mean that just because you can go and order it on Amazon. I mean, literally they're accessible because they're an easy to follow story. You can find yourself in the story somewhere without really ruining anything at different points during the terminal list. And I was listening to it, which by the way, who is it? Uh, Ray Porter. Ray Porter. Uh, yeah. yeah. Dude, he does amazing. an amazing, amazing job. He really yeah. brings you into the story at different points. Too. Yeah. I mean, at different points, listening to the terminal list, I, I was getting angry. Like while I'm driving in my car, like I'm sad for the, the main characters. And, and again, I won't go any further. So guys, if you haven't really started those three books, if you haven't gotten into them, whether you're a reader or an e-reader or, you know, an audiobook person, you can definitely get those done before April of next year. So you can be right in line with the devil's hand. But the thing that I'm curious about, and, and there's a couple of things that really came to mind for me as I'm going through these books. And I guess it leads to this two-part question is what percentage of James Reese is Jack Carr. And then with that in mind, are you ever planning to retire James Reese? Because there are some, there are some novelists that, you know, they, they just kind of run that person dry and there's really no other uh, things that they can add. There's no other romantic interests. There's no other, you know, bombs for them to, you know, turn off. But, you know, what percentage are, are you the main character? And do you see yourself ever letting James Reese go? Right. So, the main character, James Reese, is a prior enlisted Navy SEAL sniper, which I was. Uh, he becomes an officer at some point, which I did. And then when the reader meets him in the first novel, he is on his last deployment to Afghanistan. And he's coming home, and he knows that after this deployment, he's going to hang it up because this is the last time that he's going to tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield again. And that was my last deployment. It might happen to be to Iraq. Uh, but I knew that was going to be the last deployment where I would tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. After that... Yes, you're a quote unquote leader in the military, but you're not out. You're not out front. You're not kicking the doors in with the guys. You're not. And the guys don't want you out there at that point. So even though you would be a team CO, commanding officer, you'd be back in the tactical operations center. You're allocating assets. You're doing that sort of thing. Um, you're not out there in the front. And uh, I knew that that's what I came in to do. I came in uh, to fight. I came in to, to lead. And I knew that after the last deployment to Iraq that my family needed me. So it was time to time to get out and take care of my family. So, uh, so those things are all very closely tied to the main character. Now, of course, he is a much better shot than I am. He is much <laughs> better at jujitsu than I am. He is uh, much faster, much stronger, much wittier, um, all these things. He drives the same vehicle I do. Uh, he likes a 1988 Land Cruiser, right. uh, which is in my driveway. Uh, so, so there are some similarities there. And it helps because I don't have to go and find a sniper and talk to him about what it was like in Ramadi 2005, 2006, and then filter that interview or what I think I learned from that interview through whatever biases I have through my life experience and then apply it to a fictional character on the written page. Uh, I don't have to do that. And I can think about, I can remember what it was like to go into Ramadi in 05 and 06 and set up cyber positions and, and do all that sort of thing. And then I can apply that 
to a completely fictional narrative. And I think that's what really made the book stand out to Simon and Schuster, who sees thousands of these things every year. Um, the terminal list stood out to them. And I think it's because I took those experiences from Iraq and Afghanistan primarily and applied not the exact experience, but the emotion and the feelings behind those experiences to a completely fictional narrative. So as someone's reading it, it read the motions read raw, authentic, and real. And that's because they are, because they come from a real place. It's not me interviewing somebody and being like, ah, man, that, that sounds amazing. What I'm going to apply that to this narrative, this character that I'm writing. No, it's, it's what it was like in those places, but it's just applied to this fictional narrative. So I think that made it stand out. And then Will I ever retire James Reese? We will see. I have a lot of ideas. So when I, when I first sat down to start the first novel, I wrote six, seven, eight different ideas down on like one page executive summaries, essentially. So some were a paragraph, some were two paragraphs, some were a full page, but it would be like reading the back flap jacket of a book. Like, what is this book about? What's that general theme? Uh, and then I looked at all those and I chose the terminal list because it was just a visceral story of revenge. And those always appealed to me, both uh, watching films uh, and reading growing up. So that's the one that I knew I had to start with. That's how I knew I needed to introduce James Reese to the reader was through that story. Uh, but those other ones that I had written down, there's other six, seven, eight different ideas. Those are morphing into the next novel. So I don't think that I'll ever lose, I'll ever come up, not be able to come up with an idea or there's so many different ideas, so many different things I want to explore uh, through this character who has a similar background to mine. I don't see myself retiring him anytime soon, but, uh, but Hey, you never know. You never know. Hey, that's music to all of our ears because we don't want to see James Reese go away. But one thing I did want to hop on before we go on to other topics is you mentioned earlier that Chris Pratt, uh, he has signed on and he has bought the rights. Uh, they're going to be making the terminal list in Amazon. Uh, an Amazon show It's going to be uh, something that's coming out. But the problem for me as a fan and all the other fans is as soon as that information came out, everybody was excited. We're like, this is going to be so great. And then we haven't heard any other information. And I don't know if that's because uh, of COVID or there were delays of some kind. So we want to know when we're going to be seeing Chris Pratt behind the glass on Amazon. Uh -huh. Well, it's, all that stuff is classified. I have the, uh, uh, the seventh episode right here. So I'm working on the uh, the scripts. So scripts are almost, it's an eight episode series. And uh, someone sent me a screenshot of the cat. I think it's called a casting call. I'm not exactly sure. I'm still new to all this, but uh, for all the other parts. So I think that went out yesterday. Uh, or at least a, maybe a couple of days ago, maybe it was an older screenshot, but they're just starting to cast the other characters right now. So uh, sometime in the first part of 2021, I don't think I can get in trouble for saying that, uh, filming should start and then it should come out sometime after that. So uh, so we shall see, um, but uh, it can always derail. You know, I always keep my expectations low, although it's looking, looking great. Chris uh, optioned it before the first book even hit shelves and uh, he's super fired up. He just called the other day and we were talking about it because now he's shifted in his mind. We finished up Jurassic, this last part of uh, movie, Jurassic Park, and now he's shifted focus to get ready for the terminal list. So he's going to start, he's going to get in shape. He's going to learn to shoot. He's going to learn the blade work. He's going to be rolling, doing the jiu-jitsu uh, and get ready for to become James Reese in the, in this series. So he's super fired up and it was awesome to, to, to talk to him and just sense that that the switch has flipped and he's, uh, he's, he's now focused on, uh, on this project. So it's awesome. Very good. Well, there you go, guys. There's your update. Uh, we're going to move on to some some larger topics, but before we get there, uh, you know, it'd be kind of silly if I didn't ask you about your everyday carry, your EDC. So EDC. Yeah. So I, 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 
have, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll, uh, notice that, uh, that I do have quite a few blades and, uh, more than a couple firearms. Um, <laughs> I don't typically like to show all of them, but, uh, you'd be safe to assume that I have more than one. Uh, and I, but my everyday carry, I do like things right out of the box. I don't like, I have plenty of pistols that are super tricked out, uh, you know, from Terran Tactical and Zev and a bunch of 1911, uh, gunsmiths and that sort of thing. Um, but I'll tell you, I do really like knowing that right out of the box i like knowing all that research all that testing that went in to these pistols and you know maybe i switch out the sights uh something like that but uh even though i have a bunch of stuff that's super tricked out i do like to carry an out of the box 365 uh and they have great sights coming right out of the box like, right uh you know with a glock like i had a glock 43 right when that came out and of course you got to switch out the glock sights immediately um and but yeah right now it's unless I mean, if i want something a little uh uh, a little beefier then yeah that uh, sig 320 uh, x compact uh is is the one that i that i go with but i do that in a uh, black point tactical holster i love their mini wing has these little like leather flaps on the side so it kind of contorts your body a little bit better and uh so that's that's the pistol and then i have a couple different knives i go with i have one that i use to opening boxes and you know cutting cardboard and all that sort of thing and uh that changes depending on you know what i grab what drawer i open as i'm trying to get out of the house and juggle the kids and and uh, make sure the the the, the dog's gone out right before we leave, whatever, uh, just like everybody else. Uh, and then the two fixed blades that I really like these days are the, the Dynamis uh, blade, and that one goes into appendix carry, and then the Amtac blade, the Northman uh, by my friend Bill Rapier. Both of those are seal design knives. Um, and I really like this, this Amtac lately because it can go in my pocket. And I have these Dynamis jeans that have another spot for it. So when I'm putting my hands in my pockets, I'm not like raking my hand across this, uh, you know, this thing that's, that's in my pocket that uh, is scratching my hand as it comes out or it's uncomfortable or whatever. There's another spot for it right there on my side. So it's right there. And it's uh, the clips, fan the clips are great these days. You know, um, they're amazing both on holsters and for blades so that's pretty much what uh what i'm leaving what, what i'm what i grab when i leave the house you know other than the phone and the wallet of course but uh one fixed blade one uh, blade for opening packages that's a folder and then that 365 these days or the or the x compact very good um i do want to get into something because you brought it up a few times you've alluded to it in this conversation it's just the unrest that we saw as a country and really just as a people this summer and so you had the, the racial unrest after the killing of george floyd you've had just overall societal upheaval and then you had all the drama that was brought along with covid and the the presidential election which were kind of technically passed but not quite yet as of this exact moment you had the defund the police movement yet yet all these things happen but from your perspective, seeing what you've seen in other countries and, and just being an American for as long as you've been an American, what's kind of your read on on this summer and really the fall that we've had as a country and maybe what it's done to us as a people? Yeah, so I mean, my, the first word that comes to mind when you when you ask that question is it's been it's been heartbreaking to watch. Um, it's it's tough because you're seeing different you know segments of society that want to take rights away that people died people. Uh, came back missing arms and limbs. People came back completely changed because of the uh, physical and emotional trauma of the battlefield. Um, uh, from the from the inception of this country up through today, and it seems like sections of this country just want to throw that aside and don't really haven't really put the requisite thought into what that means and to what those people sacrificed so that we could have the freedoms and the options and the opportunities that we all have today. 
it's uh, so for me, it's it's heartbreaking to see that as a as a student of history, uh, citizen of this country, who's uh, put in as much time as I as I can and continue to study um, how we got here as a nation, what uh, what people sacrificed along the way, uh, some of the reasons we have some of the rights that we have, uh, understanding that they don't come from the government. Uh, the government doesn't grant any of these to us. They are the people that work in government are our employees. We elect them uh, and they just get more and more powerful day by day, crisis by crisis, uh, and they never give it back. So for me, it's been heartbreaking to watch all that, especially knowing um, what uh, what people have sacrificed and have to have seen people sacrifice everything on the battlefield in defense of this country in defense of freedom. And uh, so it's, it's tough to watch. Uh, and I think about my kids, what are they learning from this? Because you know, when I grew up, uh, it was a very, the formative news were the events were things that I naturally gravitated to and wanted to know more about anyway. Uh, I wanted to know about the Iranian hostage crisis. You know, when I saw that, I saw Walter Cronkite on our, on our TV. I saw the uh, the front page of the newspaper every morning. Uh, then we had a string of terrorist events through the 80s. Um, that's really my formative time growing up. And you had Time and Newsweek, uh, primarily in our house, and you'd see a hijacked plane on the front of that, that or, uh, you know, you'd see a, a Grenada, uh, you know, and I naturally gravitated towards these things and read about them. Uh, Marine, Marine barracks bombing, of course, uh, you know, all these different events that, uh, that really formed and impacted me. And I think, gosh, what are my kids learning? They're at the same age that I was in the eighties. Uh, and what are they getting by seeing And now? Of course I saw a newspaper. I saw a, a five minute segment on a half hour news program in the evening and then the tv changed um uh you know i saw a magazine or newspaper so they're seeing it all the time and we're guilty of this we have the tv going in the house and we're watching the news um and they're getting bombarded with things on uh their social media because they're my, our daughter is old enough to have a phone and you know, that's how she communicates with her friends is through these, it's not even texting, it's through the social, <laughs> social apps. It's a very strange thing. Uh, but that's, that's the world we live in today. So I can only imagine what they're getting bombarded with. And I'm just curious what it's doing to them seeing the summer of every night of, of rioting and seeing it um, portrayed in one way by one segment and another way by another segment uh, of the population and by uh, news media that's very powerful, um, by tech companies, by tech oligarchs that are very powerful. Um, it, it, so I do wonder about that and I do think about that quite often. I don't know how it's affecting them. And so for us, you know, we try to get outside as much as we can. We try to put all these devices down and get out hunting. We try to get it to uh, at least one river trip a year when you're in the bottom of River Canyon, when you can't be, there's, there's no cell signal, you're not getting any Wi-Fi. Uh, so there's no excuse to even check on a device. So, um, but it's tough. It's, uh, it's tough. I don't know what, it, uh, what all that's doing to these kids. That's uh, something I think about a lot. Well, let's talk about that even a little bit further, because one of the refreshing things from your Instagram is you do these history lessons and you'll talk about things that have happened that aren't really taught in school uh, or a lot of schools that maybe I attended. But you, you look at the education system right now in America and there are kids that are growing up in K through 12 schools, not learning about the Holocaust. Um, they're not knowing or understanding the dangers of socialism or communism and, and those ideologies. And so for you as a parent, but also just as an American, does that concern you at all? Like, where, where do you see this this going? Because everyone likes to talk about how divided we are, but we're super divided ideologically. And it's along some of those lines and kids just aren't learning it. They're they're having to learn it from YouTube videos of Jordan Peterson or, you know, reading the Gulag Archipelago. But where do you see this going for us? Right. I mean, parents have to take an active role 
in this. And it's tough because you're competing with a school system. You're competing with, uh, with social media platforms that can feed you certain things. You're competing with a Google search that puts, can put something at the top of that search as these kids are doing their research for certain things. Uh, and it started, you know, it started well before this, but uh, my first exposure to some of this was in my high school reading, and I might mess up the exact title, but uh, I think it's a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Yep. Um, so that one came in and I was like, what on earth is this? Um, and I'm like, well, some of this is semi-interesting here, but uh, let me do a little more research. So, um, so I guess, you know, I, I guess I liked that it was something maybe a little different, but then I was like, wait a second. It was also a warning. It was also like, ah, okay. I see what's going, I see what's going on here. Um, so I guess I'm glad I was exposed to it, but I also had the wherewithal to realize what it was even back then. Uh, and to be able to do my own research, my mom was a librarian. So I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. So, uh, I could go to the library, I could research these things. I had a foundation, uh, already. Um, my grandfather was killed in world war II. So I had this personal connection to service, uh, and to sacrifice, um, through that example that he gave to me just through the pictures of him with his squadron and his medals and his, uh, the silk maps they gave aviators back then, that sort of thing. So I had this tie to that and I was always interested in unconventional warfare, in terrorism, in warfare, um, the, in the founding of this country, what made this group of people think they could rise up against the most powerful military the earth had ever seen at that point. Um, and so all those things kind of gave me a foundation from which to read Zinn and not be like, oh, okay, just accept it at face value, write a paper and move on to my next class. Um, I realized what it was even back then. But uh, so today, I think parents need to take a very active role in this and they need to be aware of what their kids are learning, particularly in history uh, and, and with, and social studies, quote unquote, and be able to counter some of that at home, being able to point kids in the right direction and maybe some other, some other books, some other uh, places where they can get information that, uh, that isn't tainted by that uh, kind of ideology that makes us all want to feel guilty about what we've done and what we've accomplished as a country. So, so it's a, yeah, I do think about that quite a bit as well. Well, that leads to just dads being engaged, doesn't it? I mean, because if you're a dad that's disengaged, you're you're not understanding and you're not communicating with your kids. So you don't know what they're being taught at school. You don't know ways that you can counteract some of those silly ideologies that they might be getting from a teacher or something like that. But I think that this overall speaks to the current state of manhood in America. Uh, even just yesterday, I was watching this uh, clip from a new HBO documentary about trans kids. And there's this mom that's basically telling their young son who's, you know, manifesting as a girl at the moment, kind of what they're going to do and how they're going to go out and, and talk about, you know, his transgenderism. And the dad is just sitting there the whole time. And this kid is complaining. He doesn't want to do it. And uh, I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, all I can do is focus on the dad. The clip is meant to focus on mom and the child, but dad's just sitting there silent. And th there's so many silent men that are standing by and allowing these things to happen because they're either disengaged or they've just become super beta. You know, they've lost their nuts, however you want to say it. But from your perspective, seeing what you've seen being in the hyper-masculine world of, you know, the military and the Navy SEALs, what do you think the state of manhood in America is right now? Yeah, so I don't, I don't really think of it in those, in those terms. I think of it more at the tactical level. Maybe I should elevate that to the operational or strategic level. But, you know, for us, we, it's all about who you surround yourself with and what your kids are seeing well, for us anyway. Like, well, how do, how does, how do I treat 
my wife? Uh, do I open that, open the door for her uh, when she comes? To, do I stand up for a woman when she walks in the room? Those, those things that uh, that we grew up learning. Now, when we get outside, uh, we got our daughter outside very early. Got her out hunting very early, and luckily she expressed an interest. So it wasn't me pulling her <laughs> to hunting camp or anything like that. Uh, she just really expressed an interest, and I was like, "Yes, let's go, let's do this." Um, so she started shooting very early. Uh, she got her first deer at age seven. Uh, she has a couple elk now. We've all been to Africa together. Um, but in those early experiences outside at hunting camp, she got to see men being men. Uh, she got to learn how to handle a firearm properly. Uh, she got to learn a little about the history of that firearm, why we have these rights. Um, and uh, that personal responsibility, that independence uh, that comes with being around firearms, going outside, putting a bullet into a living, breathing animal, and then taking that meat and putting it in the freezer and then sharing it with the family. So uh, I think those things are very important because it's not you just telling, sitting your kids on the couch and telling them something and then they run back off to their game. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think that I mean, it might help a tiny bit, but it's, it, it's not moving the needle. Um, there's just so many other inputs these days, but what does move the needle is putting these things down, getting out there, getting right. outside, being around other people and they get to see, ah, oh, this is what you, ah, oh, this is how you, you know, this, this is what happens when the four wheeler runs out of gas when you're two miles uh, down the road, or uh, this is what happens when you don't care for it and you come back to it after uh, six months of not, it's not being used. And this is what you do. And, uh, oh, this is what happens when, uh, when you wound an animal. Um, this is how you track it. And this is why you train with that firearm and you know your limitations, you know your capabilities with that firearm because that's what you owe to this animal. Um, so it's really about that primal nature, that foundational, that base that, that uh, all of us, we've only been able to survive without being good fighters and good hunters for a very small portion of human history, the tiniest portion of human history. Uh, up until this point, up until this sliver that we live in now, you had to be a good fighter. You had to be a good hunter or your family wouldn't eat, your tribe wouldn't eat. Uh, and guess what? Your whole tribe would die because you, another tribe would overrun yours. So I think going back to those roots and having a connection to the land, having a connection to the food on your table, um, I think for both men and women, uh, for girls and boys as they're growing up, I think that's a, there's something about that that really you can't replicate anywhere else. You can't replicate just by handing them a book and hope they read it or by turning on a, you know, a half hour show and hoping they won't be distracted and hoping they'll take those lessons to heart before they run back to the room or go outside and play soccer or whatever. Um, it's really about immersing yourself outside in that environment. But there's a difference between just going on a hike, uh, going rock climbing, going ice climbing, mountaineering, backpacking, which are all wonderful things. But there's a difference between going out and doing those types of things with a firearm, with a bow, and then with the goal of bringing meat back to feed your family. There's just something different about that. That's great. And I love the way that you framed that. And before we move on to the last section of the podcast here, I noticed something that you, that you said a little bit earlier. You talked about how the government, the United States government uh, specifically, they did not come up with these rights. They don't grant us these rights. They basically can build a, a structure that acknowledges them. So obviously when people t normally bring that up, they bring it up in some sort of a Judeo-Christian context in a creator type context. But one thing that I haven't heard you speak about very much is your own personal faith. Uh, it's not really something that comes out in the novels either, but again, you're, you're Jack Carr, you're not James Reese. But in terms of your, your personal faith, what is it that, that you believe that you would like to share with, with our audience here in terms of 
you know, why we're all here, the reason for everything, how we got here to begin with, where would you say you land on all that? Yeah. So you're right. I don't talk about it too often. Um, it does come up every now and again, but I have a, uh, uh, King James version Bible right here next to me because we're uh, in the move. Uh, we have boxes everywhere, but that was something that was given to me by my great grandmother. And, uh, it's right here next to me. It's something that I it didn't just go in a box. It went, uh, it came with me. So, um, and we have a bigger family Bible out in the, in the front room, but it, you know, so I did, I did grow up that way I did grow up going to church with my family, going to Sunday school with my family. And man, those lessons that you learn from those stories, they, they're important. They're not just important in a, in a religious sense. They're, they're important in a historical context, uh, to be able to move through this world and be able to go back to those stories, to those lessons, to be able to discuss them with other people, have them as a common touch point. Um, and, I guess a good example of that is, so I went to Bud's and went through Hell Week in 1997. Guess what? I have something in common with somebody that went through Bud's and Hell Week in 1967, in 1977, uh, and we'll go through next week, um, that sort of thing. So to have something, to have a common story, a common heritage that we can all link back to, we can all reference, is makes us a stronger country, a stronger citizenry. And we're definitely losing that over time. And it's being replaced by things uh, like the religion of climate change, maybe, or something along those lines, something that isn't really uh, a religion, isn't really a faith, um, isn't, uh, doesn't have a foundation in stories that have a lesson attached to them that is designed to make us better people and to make us be able to get along with others. Uh, golden rule. I mean, my goodness, treat others as you'd like to be treated. And social media only makes that worse. It's right. just, it, it's, I think about that almost daily when I see people that have to be mean, negative and nasty uh, to each other on social media, totally unnecessarily, and probably using time that should be spent allocated elsewhere, using bandwidth that could be focused in a positive direction. Instead, they choose to take that time, take that energy, take that very limited bandwidth uh, that they only have so much of, and we don't know how many days we're going to have on this earth, and they decide to be mean and nasty unnecessarily to someone that they don't even know on social media. It's fa it's it's actually fascinating to me, and I'll probably explore it in future novels. Yeah, it's fascinating and terrifying all at the same time. But as long as you realize that's not something that anyone would ever say to their face, you can kind of deal with it a little bit better. But <laughs> I, I definitely appreciate that perspective. And uh, we're going to be wrapping this interview up here very soon because I know you got to go to another one of these interviews here in just a second. But we got one more segment left for you. It's called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that and then I'm going to give you some sort of a topic. And you've got, you know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds maximum to just give me the meat and potatoes answer, regardless of if it has a lot more nuance, because I guarantee you it will. But it's just we want to get the right off the top of the head responses to some of these things. So what would you say to someone that said, you think you're up for it? So I'm up for it, but I'm going to tell you that I'm an author because I am not good at things like this, because I can, I can sleep on them. I can think of them. I can think about the best thing you could possibly say in this certain situation. And that might take a month to figure out. Uh, it certainly isn't off the cuff. Uh, so, so we'll see how it goes here. Uh, also, I've learned I need to take a breath when I see something on social media, like we just talked about. It's much better to take a breath and not respond and come back to it a day later and be kind. 
Well, we're all about making people uncomfortable and stretching you just a hair. So I think you'll do okay. Your buddy Stephen Pressfield did all right with it. So I feel like you could do at least as good as he did. So here we go. Let's launch in. What would you say to someone that said, I don't want my kids to be in special operations? I understand it. I definitely understand that perspective as a parent, no doubt about it. So I would say I understand that. Uh, but, you know, like with all the things we don't want our kids to do, uh, it's probably not going to help <laughs> if, we try, if we try to keep them out. Right. All right. Next rapid fire question here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to read anymore. I'm not in school. Ugh. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's all I can say. One. That's yeah. a common one. <laughs> That's horrible. I just, uh, I just gotta shake my head at that one. Um, but hey, to each their own, you know, to each their own. But I would encourage people to read, regardless of what it is, just because it's uh, uh, you'll probably lead a, a richer, fuller life. And by that, I, I don't mean in the monetary sense. Absolutely. And if you wanted to start with something, start with the terminalist and then just go for it. <laughs> That's a great right. place to there, start. Here you go. There, there's your plug. What would you say to someone <laughs> that said the USA needs a viable third political party? Oh man, they might be right. You know, that's, that's a, such a tough one because we're so ingrained in these two different parties and one, uh, and now they're so ideologically opposed to one another um, that uh, I would say there may be a time and a place for that. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said the United States of America will have a second civil war? Mm, I would say study your history. Fair enough. I love it. What would you say to someone that said there is no place for social justice in the United States military? I would say that, uh, yeah, social justice in the United States military. Yeah, it's probably not a good place to experiment with these things. Does it make us stronger uh, as a nation, as a military, as a fighting force? Uh, And if the answer is no, then get it out of there. All right. Just a few more left. What would you say to someone that said the Biden administration will be terrible for our foreign policy and military? Oh, geez. I'd I'm trying to get you in trouble. All right. So let's just go I'm ahead and numb. wade into it. Yeah. I'd say I'm numb to all this at the, at this point. And I would probably, <laughs> yeah, roll my eyes and we shall see. Uh, yeah. We're so diametrically opposed right now. Um, it's And it's yeah tough to watch, but we shall see. All right. Two more left. What would you say to someone that said, I feel like I'm supposed to write a book, but I don't know where to start at the beginning. Just do it. Like, just like eat an elephant one bite at a time. So yeah, it's not going to get done without you sitting down and doing the work. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to learn how to protect myself. That's what the police and military are for. I would say, watch the news over the past few months, watch the news of the summer. Um, that's a tough one when you hear that because it's so, it seems so obvious and it, 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 uh, is, is tough for me because it's so obvious to me. I don't understand how someone would not want to protect that gift of life, uh, that, that it, and to rely on someone else and then rely on someone else's goodwill. And by someone else's goodwill, I mean, the enemy's will, I mean, a criminal's will not to hurt you. Um, once again, it goes back to our responsibility as, uh, as leaders, as fathers, as men to be able to defend ourselves and our families. Uh, that is our primary responsibility. So, um, when someone says that, I, I don't even know how to respond. Well, that is a great way to end this, Jack. We have talked about a lot of different things in this podcast. We went over everything, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? 
Oh, thank you so much. I got like three minutes till I need to get to my next thing. But uh, yeah, people can uh, can follow me on uh, Jack Car USA on the social channels. And then there's some merchandise out there that uh, I send 100% of the proceeds to uh, the charitable foundations that are highlighted on my site. And they are all veteran-focused organizations where I have a personal touch point. So it's not just a, a foundation that had a nice website. It's uh, someplace that helped a friend of mine. Uh, uh, and I, I send all that there. So that's at jackcarusa.com. So uh, that that is it. But thank you. I want to thank everybody for all their support. That's for sure. Because as we talked about earlier, this was all a grassroots effort, and I sincerely appreciate it. I'll never forget it. All right, guys. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. But Jack Carr, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's do it again sometime. Will do. There you go, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this interview. And I just got to give a special shout out here at the end of this episode. I meant to say it at the beginning, but Stephen Pressfield, thank you so much for those of you guys. You've listened to the episode that I did with Stephen Pressfield. You're familiar with his books, but he is very good friends with Jack Carr. I think we even talked about Jack on the podcast interview I did with Stephen, but he was integral in getting me connected with Jack. Uh, and he would connected me while he was writing The Devil's Hand. And so he was literally in the thick of it, in the thick of editing and all the things he was doing, trying to get that fourth novel out to you guys. But Stephen was able to kind of help get me through everything to get this interview done. So big shout out to Stephen Pressfield. I really appreciate it. And guys, don't worry. Uh, got some special things coming up for Stephen Pressfield at the beginning of the year. So be on the lookout for that. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, here are the links I got for you. I got a link to Jack Carr's website. So if you want to go and buy any of the stuff he was talking about there at the end, you want to find a way to buy his books, you want to follow him on social media, that is a great place to go that kind of gets you to all those different areas. Then I've also got the YouTube video of his interview on the Joe Rogan Experience. That was Joe Rogan Experience 1467. That link is here. And the last one is an article that I didn't really get time to talk to him about, but it was an article that he wrote for Town Hall. Uh, That's, I think it's a conservative kind of think tank website, but it's called Our Obligation to Fight. And Considering where we are in our society, considering where we are with a lot of things around self-defense, and I know some people are really worried that if Joe Biden is actually going to take over the White House, he's uh, signaled about Beto O'Rourke maybe being his his guns are, and he, he's talked about all these different things, but it's going to be an interesting time for Second Amendment lovers uh, like Jack Carr, myself, and a lot of you guys listening to this. So I think that's a really important article for you, but it even goes way past guns, way past the Second Amendment, just to the whole concept of us taking care of ourselves, the whole concept of us protecting ourselves, and how a lot of these policies politicians that are walking around with, you know, six figure security guards all day, every day that are armed. It's interesting that they're telling us how and when we can use our firearms. So anyway, that's a good one to check out. So I've got that for you here. Guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please take the time to leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for all of 2021, so if you want me to come speak at your men's event, on your podcast, at your whatever, at your team, it doesn't matter, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro or outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. 
I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Run!